0: There's been growing attention across the industry on the supply gap, the shortage of units available for households that need them, of affordable and workforce housing, and the impact that has on rent affordability.
1: And in simple terms, right, to close the supply gap, you just need to build more, but obviously it's not that easy. And there are many factors that make that difficult, many of which are beyond the control of a developer, but a developer can control how they build. And this is an emerging frontier in affordable housing development.
0: The question is, how much of a difference can that make? And is the industry ready? Hello, and welcome to the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss.
1: And I'm Corey Aber. And today we're going to look into some innovative construction methods and the potential impact they can have on closing the supply gap, or at least making new units more affordable than they might otherwise be.
0: We're joined today by Andrea Ponser and Adam Cohen from the Stewards of Affordable Housing for the Future. They're the authors of a new paper that looks in-depth at the question. It's called Faster, Better, More, Promising Construction and Technology Approaches for Accelerated and Efficient Affordable Housing Development. Andrea and Adam, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
1: All right. So, Andrea, before we get into the details of some of the new construction approaches, I think it would be good to set some background, right? So we've been talking a lot on the podcast about the shortage of affordable units in the country and the need to close that supply gap. But what makes doing so difficult? What's holding the market back?
2: Sure. So we think about this in four categories, land, materials, labor, and regulation. So land is just the availability and and cost of land. We focused for our report a lot on the West Coast, where you can see in cities like San Francisco, you've got less than 3% of the land that's actually available is developable, where you could build housing or, or any other use. Even in cities where there's more available land, it's, it's still not a lot, and we're competing for that land with all other uses. So it's driving up costs um, just to buy the land. There are certainly solutions there, but that's one factor. Another piece is regulation. Um, a, a recent study by the National Multi-Housing Council and others found that 30 to 40 percent of the cost of producing multifamily housing is driven by regulation. Some of that is good and important regulation. Some of it is, is maybe something that could be streamlined. So that's a contributing factor as well a third piece is materials cost. Materials costs are rising rapidly. Um you know 11 to 20% sort of depending on category and as much as 8% just year over year one year to the next on your cost of concrete and wood, the fuel to transport those materials to the to a project where you're building. So all of that drives up the cost. There are trade factors too that impact that, but but notwithstanding those factors there are, there are just rising costs in materials. And then a fourth component is labor. I, mean, I think we'll talk a little more later about sort of the loss of skilled construction labor in general. But there is so much building activity and we're in such a strong economy right now that finding people to help construct housing is incredibly difficult and in driving up the cost of doing so.
1: So out of those, those four categories, land, materials, labor and regulation, you know, what can the developers really control and, and uh, uh, what are they looking to do about it now?
2: Sure. So we're a collaborative of developers, and we'd like to think we could have a voice in all of those things. Certainly, we advocate for regulatory streamlining and policies that promote the development and preservation of affordable housing. Um, We're thinking very creatively about land, both land that our members own and how they can partner with cities and other nonprofits, other groups to maximize the use of land and drive down costs. But the place where we think we can really move the needle and move it most quickly is around materials and labor. Um, What we build, how we build it, who we use to build it.
0: And so as as you work to do that what are some of the methods that uh, that are able to achieve that
2: So we looked in our report very broadly at offsite construction different ways to construct housing or pieces of housing offsite not on the place where it's ultimately going to be located we also took a short look at some new materials like mass timber and some process improvements, like integrated project delivery, that changes how a design, engineering, and construction team works together to produce a project. We spent most of our time thinking about offsite construction.
1: Right, so let's talk about that. So offsite construction. So how does that compare to you know, just think of a normal, uh, normal construction? Uh, how does that work today, and, and what's different about offsite?
2: Great. So we think about normal construction as stick-built or site-built, where you're framing out a building and installing everything on location, building it from lumber or steel to a building. Off-site is when you're building some major component in a factory somewhere, not on-site. Um, And that may be panelized where you're doing just a superstructure, like a steel frame that's built off site and then can be assembled on site. It may be enclosed walls that actually have some electrical or systems already closed in the wall and then are put together, like if you're old enough to remember, Yaffa blocks one wall at a time. Um, Or it may be what we call fully volumetric, so full units, six-sided, four walls, a ceiling and a floor, brought and sort of stitched together on site. So there's a range, but it's taking some of that work off the site into a factory where you have controlled conditions.
0: So the volumetric is kind of the classic you think of Legos or something like that, stacking on top of each other?
2: Yeah, but that you've built your little Lego house and stacked them up to make a Lego apartment building in a way?
0: With part of the labor being done on-site and part of it at factories, does that change uh, the dynamic at a project?
2: And I think Adam's going to speak to some of the labor factors.
0: Uh
2: On-site, you still have work to be done, right? Right. You still Uh have to clear a site. Um, and and right. prepare to put a building there. So you've got right. some labor on site, and then you've got the piece off site. And I think there are that then indicates a, a lot of sort of regulatory and code pieces, uh-huh. both in how you work on site and off site, wherever that may be. So I don't know what you want to right. Uh, it, that.
3: It's also yeah. just going to affect you know what what type of labor and what um, and where that labor is occurring. So you have you know when we think back to why labor is driving up costs so much. Um, you have a huge shortage of labor that's both traditional construction labor, but also um, a shortage of workers in the skilled trades um, that – Developers have access to, and this is driving up costs. Not only do you have to pay more money to get good people working on your projects, um, but you also it also means your project can take a lot longer to complete because you have to compete with other developers to get on the schedules of this limited number of workers. Um, you know their services are in high demand. Uh, we've even have heard of some of our members talk about the added costs of security staff that they hire on site to keep. Other developers from poaching staff. So this is kind of you know how in demand um, construction and, and skilled trade uh, construction workers are right now, um, which you know understandably is driving up costs. The technologies and manufacturers that we looked at start to address this issue in a few different ways. First, it moves the labor need, it moves a lot of the labor need to the factories. So this means that the manufacturers can hire full-time workers to work in those factories, um, and you don't need to go out searching for labor for each individual project. Um, and it also means that you can reduce the number of different trade professionals you need to complete construction because you're using automation in the factories, and you can also cross-train workers in that space. Uh, second, it means that you know production can continue, rain or shine, for the most part. So uh could building is much less weather dependent when a lot of that work is being done in the factory um, this you know speeds up the time of project completion and also makes your time uh, line much more predictable and then third uh, on-site construction work which can range anywhere from stacking and stitching modular units that already have finishes and appliances and are pretty much complete all the way to um, you know assembling Standardized factory-made components can be done with less people and can be done simultaneous to factory or other finishing work. In some models, uh, site work begins at the same time that the factory work begins, and the two things, uh, two processes, occur simultaneously. In other models, uh, you can be having piping and you know wiring done on the first, second, and third floors while the fifth, sixth, and seventh floors are being installed. Um, so again, being able to kind of do these things simultaneously also means that less labor. Um, is going to be needed, and it just speeds up the time uh, taken together you know these three changes are going to mean pretty significant savings in time, one manufacturer of modular units uh, reported being able to install 12 units per day on site. Uh, one manufacturer that does more panelized components is reported being able to install 60 to 80,000 square feet a month and also pretty significant savings in costs given the need for a smaller number of potentially less skilled workers, uh, the possibility of benefiting from a lower prevailing wage in the market where the factory is compared to the market where the property is being built and also just in the reduced number of hours overall that it takes to finish a project.
1: So does that manifest itself in uh, more units or cheaper units, uh, same number of units, but just cheaper to build and so therefore cheaper to rent? Uh, how, do, how does that cost savings on the construction side translate into uh, rent for tenants?
3: I think the answer is both. I think all of those factors that we just talked about save both costs in terms of there being a reduced number of hours, a reduced uh, number of laborers, and um, you know potentially lower-skill laborers needed. Um, and then, at the same time, you know the whole process is happening much more quickly. Uh, you know all of those little savings and costs are ultimately what are going to drive down the development costs, and that you know translates to a lower rent needed to be able to make that project financially feasible
0: and I think it 's also worth considering that often I, oftentimes um, rent is probably not a function of cost of development um, because there 's market rents in a given area. And uh, while you definitely benefit from the lower costs and that makes the, these things possible, right, I think that's the important part is you quickly, as you said, get markets devel- delivered into the market that will change the balance of supply and demand in that market and that will potentially drop down those rents and especially because they, you know, they've, all, they've got room for that as well.
2: Yeah. Because we think so much about affordable housing, which is often restricted or subsidized in some way, in most major markets, we're finding we cannot build at a level that's affordable. So it requires some level of subsidy. So this does allow us to, and we're still not getting to where it's affordable to low income residents, even with some savings, but it does save on how deeply you need to subsidize if you can drive down that cost, that, that delta between what it's actually costing to create and finance and what you can charge a lower moderate income resident becomes smaller.
1: So, so it could mean a little bit less state or local subordinate debt, or
2: if you could get to maximum savings, arguably, um, it, for an affordability-minded developer. It, it, point well taken that you know market forces will drive rents.
0: Right. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And I think that um, we, in in the report, I think it also discusses that there's a different kind of model whether you're working with uh, a for-profit or not-for-profit um developers is there anything interesting about that or-
2: Yeah so I think this is really interesting actually um Different manufacturers are thinking differently about how they want to execute, whether they work with a general contractor, whether they work with a developer as basically another supplier, a supplier this time of entire walls or units instead of just wood or steel, or whether they're actually a partner in that development. So we saw a range of of people that will sort of work very flexibly in whatever way the developer wants them to, right up to manufacturers that want to do turnkey development and actually build something for you and then turn it over to you as an owner. Somewhere along that spectrum is an emerging group of folks that are sort of vertically integrating their processes all the way through participating in the design and engineering, serving as the contractor, and serving as a co-developer. And that's where that different approach works for a profit-motivated versus a nonprofit. In a for-profit setting, they're remaining a partner in that development and sharing in the success of the development and a developer fee to the extent there is one and potentially in cash flow in the long run. So these company, this particular company that operates on that model is not just a manufacturer, they are continuing to be a real estate owner as well, potentially. In a nonprofit setting, because you're not distributing profits, that's not a sensible business model. So they're acting as a fee-for-service developer. If you think of what has become the dominant way of developing affordable housing through the low-income housing tax credit program, a big revenue source for developers who have that as their primary mission is their developer fee. So thinking about paying someone else to do the development is a mindset shift and a potential paradigm shift, and I think it's sort of an interesting question. Um, It does open up the opportunity, though, perhaps for smaller groups, both for-profit and nonprofit, that may not have a lot of sophistication in development to get this work done or to play in a new space with the type of building they're building. Um, so I, I think it's an exciting thing, and we'll see how it evolves and how much uptake they have on that sort of fee for service development model.
0: That's interesting, and I think you know you've talked about the different methods, and you've talked about you know working in you know, different development styles. Are there parts of the industry that are more mature than others, and and you see growth coming in the near future, and and other areas that still have a ways to go?
2: Sure. So I, this is here. Certainly, particularly in the affordable space, we're already seeing the use of modular, largely fully volumetric, I think, is the space that's most mature. There are some manufacturers in the Mountain West that have been doing this work for the better part of 10 or 15 years in the multifamily space. And obviously, you know, we're talking today about multifamily housing. Manufactured housing has long been a very important part of the single-family stock, particularly um, the affordable single-family stock. So the multifamily volumetric modular is maturing, um, and I think there's a good track record. Some of our members have already used multifamily modular in existing projects in the last five to 10 years. I think this larger spectrum of how you think about panelized development um, and all of the different ways you can do this and the different business models for how you work with a property owner are evolving. um, it, you know we talked a little bit about the vertical integration too. A lot of these firms think that they can maximize savings by integrating not only services but potentially with suppliers. Um, there are some actually buying up suppliers trying to control the entire process from where you source materials to you know the general contracting and turning it right over to a developer. That is very much still maturing. Those, that, those are new ideas and savings aren't fully realized yet. So it will be interesting to see. Uh, to maximize those savings and work with those folks, you generally need a really large pipeline. So I, I think before that trickles down to many developers, particularly of affordable housing, there's a long way to go.
1: What about on the financing side of this? So you've seen some, some success uh, already, but how are these, uh, these projects financed and is it different from stick-built construction?
2: So in terms of permanent financing, probably not. But during construction, it is it is something different. Traditionally, when you're building multifamily housing, lenders are making advances generally on a draw on a monthly basis as they can see progress and as you need the, the funds to construct the project. If you're working with a an offsite construction, a modular manufacturer, they're going to want a lot up front because they're building everything all at once, a whole unit. They've got to buy a bunch of materials and they've got to reserve time on their construction uh, in their production line. Um, that's a big advance. It's going to look really different for a lender than what you're doing than what they're used to on site. You're also offsite. You're not on a piece of land, so how you secure that interest and the materials that are bought with the money that the lender would be asked to advance is a little bit different. There's definitely some evolution there. People seem to be getting more comfortable uh, sending inspectors on site, use of QR codes to even track materials and, and help get comfortable with that. Um, we've heard but haven't been able to confirm that there's one lender using cameras um, in a factory just to, to sort of see daily progress and see where how the units are going and where their units are compared to everything else in the factory. Uh, some of that is, I think, more comfort level than real sort of legal perfection of security interest or anything like that. But I think there's still absolutely a place for you know, mission-driven lenders and states and localities that have funding to put into this to be a flexible financing source and help increase the uptake of this. Our members have found that it is particularly helpful to have some equity, some cash you can use to help front this um, and, and not have to fight those battles with the lender. But it does seem that it's evolving, and I think we'll get there.
1: So what about on, on the local front and zoning and, and regulation? Uh, how is that impacted by – these new methods?
2: Yeah. So zoning, these are still multifamily housing. And in that respect, we we aren't hearing too much around the zoning side. NIMBY concerns exist for building any kind of of anything, really. Um, We see them stronger sometimes in affordable housing. And I think there's an education component if someone hears that modular is coming to town to making them understand this can be actually really beautiful and modern and will look in the end like it, it will be, you know, you can't differentiate it from other buildings. The big sort of regulatory piece, I think, where you do see the difference is there are inspections happening at multiple levels. You always have building inspections taking place. But in this case, you're inspecting at a factory, which may be in the same jurisdiction. It may not. It may be four states away. And then you're inspecting on site. Understanding how those things work together and what the various entities that may inspect on site are going to expect and what they will be able to do with the systems you're using is an important piece of it.
3: I mean, I would say that, you know, this is a really important point for developers who are considering using some of these new approaches is that, you know, you wanna make sure that there is a really strong kind of upfront education process. And part of the reason of that is that, you know, If you are halfway through a project and you have an inspector that comes through looking to mandate some um, modification or change the building, it may be the case that whatever they're asking for just isn't consistent with the design limitations of modular or panelized or some of these aspects. So that upfront education and and understanding kind of, um, you know, what – what the uh, inspection processes will be like and what challenges these approaches might face is important.
2: Yeah, an example is in, in California, there is, separ- for a long time, separate drawings were needed for state and for local. Um, given the different types of inspections. So getting to a single set of drawings that can just be marked up differently and shared is one way to streamline. Um, And so it's going to depend a lot on the state and locality you're dealing with. But there certainly, I think, are opportunities for states and localities to look for ways to encourage this by streamlining their processes.
3: We've been really encouraged so far in seeing that, um, you know, some cities are going ahead and and, and really taking a proactive approach to this. Um, You know, San Francisco announced a commitment of $100 million in city funding to purchase modular units. They seem to be... uh, taking you know, these new approaches pretty seriously as they think about addressing issues related to homelessness in the city. Uh, new York City recently put out an RFI seeking feedback from local stakeholders on how to take advantage of modular construction. Uh, POA, who is one of SAFE's members, just won a pretty significant city-run competition in Chicago um, for a proposal to develop modular, mixed-use housing and commercial space on vacant city-owned land. Um, and then another, one of SAFE's members, the Community Builders, they've done it in Greenfield, Massachusetts. Um, you know, so th- this isn't only happening in the large high-cost markets, although you know, obviously it's those places where there's the largest affordability issues that are um, naturally going to be kind of looking more seriously in the beginning.
0: We had talked about um, whether the industry was ready for it as our opening question. And uh, it sounds like the industry definitely is ready for it and that there is some growth um, would would you say that that's accurate?
2: I, I think there's a lot of hunger for innovation, and I think this is a very attractive way to bring innovation. Ready is probably a relative term. I think we're going to learn a lot of things along the way. As Adam said, there are some cities, you know, ready to look at innovative ways ways of doing things, and we're going to find out where those friction points are in financing and in regulation as we go. I, I think there's a lot of narrative around now around like we need to recognize those challenges and and seek ways to streamline them. So it seems like a good time.
1: So, so let's talk about that a little bit um, and go into some more detail about the different methods. So, I, I think it would be good to, um, you know, you mentioned a few in the paper. Uh, let's talk through each of those and, and maybe some of the those challenges that that we're starting to face and maybe resolve.
2: So, in terms of offsite construction, you can have panelized construction, which is just that building panels, and it may be panels of wood framing or panels of steel framing. It may be panels that are are more like walls with some electrical and mechanical enclosed already depends on the manufacturer and, and whether that's the right fit is a, a bit of a design question. Um, you can have – we were really interested to find a vendor that's doing basically steel framing that works like an erector set. They're doing precision design and cutting in a factory and you bring flat pallets of you know pre-cut steel pieces out to a site and they can be put together with basically like a, a wrench um, and a frame of a, a steel frame building that can be you know, 12 to 18 stories can go up incredibly quickly and with great precision that way. Um, So that's one end of the spectrum of just sort of a a superstructure all the way to volumetric. Somewhere in between are sort of half-built units, units that may have four sides, a floor and, you know, three walls – but not a ceiling type, and those can be stacked along the way. What you get there is the potential to maximize how many units you can get in a building because you're not losing height by having duplicate floors and ceilings. Um, And there are some other advantages to doing it that way as well. There are some challenges in that case to transport. Then you have fully volumetric, which is a completely built unit, and it may be built with no fixtures. It can be all the way built with, you know, come with cabinets and appliances strapped inside when it arrives. So even that is a spectrum within it.
1: So you talked about some of these off-site constructions, building the panels or building the units. How are those transported?
2: Sure. So generally on trucks, um, panels are transported transported flat-packed and often are QR-coded and can be scanned to know exactly where they're going to go on site. Fully volumetric units are coming on trucks as well, which I think is a good way to segue in talking about design of these units The transport itself can be a constraint. You have to think about how big can you make a unit if you've got to fit it on the back of a truck. And if you've got to get it through a tunnel or over a bridge, that's going to have limitations too. The limitations on design are more than just how you transport, though, as well. If you are building volumetrically or using one of these grid systems with panels, what you can do on a site may be limited. Not every site is going to be well-suited for this. If you've got an incredibly hilly site that indicates a sort of windier curved building type, some modular approaches won't be appropriate for that site. It's best you will maximize the savings, both time and money. If you think of thinking modular very early in the design process, in the first part of the schematic design process, when you're thinking about what is this building going to be composed of? How many people is it going to house and what type of units? Then if you think, I want to build 100 units, I want this configuration of one, two, and three bedrooms, and I want the building to be shaped like this. If you then take it to a modular developer, they may or may not be able to accommodate you depending on their business model and on the actual structure they build. So that design piece is a limitation and I think is part of as this gets adopted, retraining our thinking of how do you evaluate a site and decide up front that you should be considering off-site construction as a potential approach.
0: When people consider modular development, is it always 100% modular or is it a mix? Is there a hybrid model?
2: Sure. So, you know, we looked at several manufacturers for our paper and the type of construction they do varies. Some are using steel frame that is better suited to high rise construction. Some are wood frame well suited to three to four stories over a concrete podium that may have parking underneath it. So you think of something sort of slightly more suburban, but what a lot of apartments look like. You know, With that, when you conceive of going modular, modular construction is, is going to make a difference in how you design your building and in your cost of constructing it.
1: So does it ever happen that someone changes their mind halfway through? They start stick-built and then realize uh, maybe they can do modular?
2: Not once they actually start building the building, but certainly this happens when you get into the design process and if conceived or even promised what a building is going to look like and include and then want to consider modular, and that's where you start to erode some of the savings. We think that's, that's been the case in a lot of modular developments so far. They didn't start out being an off-site construction you know, panelized or fully volumetric modular approach, and that sort of shift ate away at some of the potential savings.
1: So there's another aspect of this, right? So there's construction approach. There's also the materials. So you talk about tall timber and mass timber and various other subforms of timber. Uh can you explain that a little bit? Because especially when you're building bigger, timber doesn't seem to be uh the natural choice for a you know, larger city building, right?
2: Sure. We thought this was kind of fascinating. And our member that asked us to produce the paper was curious. They work in the Pacific Northwest where there's a lot of interest in tall timber. This is not just using you know wood that you've created in planks from a tree, but manufacturing a product made from wood that may be nailed, doweled, glued, laminated together to make a very strong product that can be used to frame a building. Typically, we've not seen incredibly tall wood skyscrapers in this country, but there have very recently been some changes to the International Building Code that would open the door to going up to potentially 85 feet using a timber structure. There's the opportunity for some cost savings there and for some efficiency that we think is really interesting. That's still a ways away in terms of code adoption. It'll become effective in a couple of years, but states like Oregon and Washington have laid the groundwork to have that be adopted sooner. Um, There was actually an affordable housing project planned in the in Portland, I believe it's been tabled for the moment for other reasons, but was going to be the first you know, multifamily affordable housing tall timber.
1: What what makes something tall timber? Is it really just it's long pieces of timber? Or? <laughs>
2: it, so tall timber refers to use of mass timber, one of these manufactured products, to build a a tall building above a certain height. Um, and, and we think as we think more about density for for house, affordable housing in particular, the ability to use this alternative material that may have some ecological and cost savings benefits um, to go in a denser setting is a very promising thing.
3: And there is definitely a precedent for it in other countries, Canada, Australia, I think a few other countries. We've seen some pretty impressive um, you know mass timber buildings and and there's also kind of an aesthetic uh advantage to it as well you know they they kind of have this nice warm, kind of homey feel and look to them that kind of raw material is able to be used for for design and, and aesthetic purposes as well, which also leads to cost savings so
1: so actually does the modular construction allow you to do more in terms of efficiency or or healthy housing?
2: So I think these are two, just two good points built in there. Um, one, modular offers the opportunity, or just off-site construction in general, panelized as well, building in a factory and building with precision design um, allows you to reduce waste. Um, So you can potentially be more efficient by doing precision cuts. You're using materials and maximizing what you're getting out of each one, um, not only because you're using technology and automation, but also because you're mass producing. So you have multiple units where you can use something instead of taking a material to the site and having cut waste on the site that doesn't go anywhere because there is no second property to use it on. Um, In terms of healthy building materials and efficiency in the units, we think, again, this idea that you're producing at scale and in a factory setting may offer the opportunity to reach scale on the use of healthy building materials. If you can get a manufacturer to say, you know, we want to be more mindful about the type of materials we're using in everything we build, that's a really good way to very consistently increase the use of those materials. We're also seeing some manufacturers be really thoughtful about incorporating Uh, energy and water efficiency measures into the property, including sensors, um, which is interesting not only from a conservation perspective, but from how you operate your building and can control sort of systems performance over time.
3: That's also, uh, I think, a good area to note that um, you know, one of the other potential cost savings um, and maybe you know, associated financing implications is that um, some manufacturers seem to think that they're going to get a much longer life out of these buildings, um, which could lead to obviously longer term cost savings um, and in terms of reducing you know, just general operating costs if they are incorporating some of these energy and water and other utility saving mechanisms
0: we've talked a lot about savings i'm and i'm not sure are there i think it's really hard to get numbers on on how big those savings are have, have do you have any you know range or estimate on that
2: So we can tell you what the manufacturers tell us, and then we can tell you about how our heads hurt after we spent months trying to do a meaningful cost comparison. Um, So we hear numbers of, you know, up to 20 percent cost savings from most manufacturers. A lot of that is yet to be realized because they're seeking other efficiencies in their process through vertical integration or just scale in general. As we tried to compare, and our members have done um, some off-site construction, both fully volumetric and panelized, as we tried to do cost comparisons, we ran into a, a number of challenges, really practical ones like, are these even in the same market and were they built in the same year? But also, when in the process did you conceive of using this technology? Did you do this in a way that really maximizes the savings and took advantage of everything this, this manufacturer or this system or approach has to offer in the way of savings? It's really difficult to find sort of clean start projects to look at and compare that way. We know that there are time savings which can mean that your construction loan periods are shorter and you can save a few hundred thousand dollars on interest on that construction loan. If you can get that building done 40 percent faster, which seems to be the number time savings wise that folks are throwing around and and seems to have some credence. You know, we know that there's money savings potentially on labor. We know that if you could get to efficiency on regulation, that could be meaningful as well. Um, So I think there's a lot of opportunity. Actually assigning a value to that remains a little bit challenging and we look forward to kind of keeping at it. (laughs)
0: Yeah, no, it's really interesting to me what what you have been discussing today in terms of, uh, you know, the intuition is there that it, that it's cost savings, but it but it goes more broad than that. It's a, it's a business model that appears to work, and I I think the the discussion how, of how design changes and and a lot of things change about the process.
2: Yeah. It's a potentially a whole new way of thinking. And right now, it's a little bit of a buffet. You can choose what pieces of it you want to do and, and don't want to do. But with that, you're trading off savings in both time and money. I had one other
0: data-related question, and I'm not sure if, if there's collection on this either. Is there a number of units delivered per year or anything like that at this point that would say how much this industry – how big it is and how much it's growing – I
3: haven't seen studies that have aggregated across the various manufacturers. Um we have included, you know, we included profiles at the end of our paper of manufacturers that we looked at, you know, mostly west coast ones, um because of, you know, kind of the purpose of why we were doing the paper, but um manufacturers individually are, you know, advertising numbers in terms of what their production capacity is in a year. Okay.
2: Yeah, I think how you define the industry is a challenge too. Right. They all they identify differently. The different manufacturers, um, and you know, the Adam talking about producer numbers, I think is an important point to throw out there, which is the capacity. There's more demand than capacity right now, um, and that's a significant issue and an opportunity for you know a host of different players to think about how they can they invest in the infrastructure that supports this. It also, the capacity po- poses a risk as well. Um, if your manufacturer gets behind and has a delay because something slips in someone else's project and you're counting on them to produce your units, that does create a risk and an exposure for you as a developer in, in getting your units produced. So g- we are eager to see capacity grow in many of these manufacturers.
3: Looking forward, we've, we've heard quite a few of the manufacturers that we talked about with plans to create additional factories, um, You know, sometimes just larger ones in the kind of geographic area. They're in now, but sometimes second and third and fourth factories in other locations. Um, and you know I think just creating more of factories opens up these possibilities in other markets across the country.
1: So you focused on markets on sort of the west coast and uh, pacific Northwest right is Is that just because that's where the activity is right now, or was that your your mandate in the paper and and it's going on more broadly?
2: So our member that asked us to write the paper? works primarily on the West Coast. So both to control the scope and to be most useful to them, we focused on West Coast markets. The activity seems to be greatest right now in high-cost markets. There's a lot of activity from what we understand in New York City. There is some growing activity in Chicago. But many of the vendors that we talk to and others are you know, building factories and doing projects in Denver, in the Southwest, in the Atlanta area. So it's growing everywhere. While the cost pressures that I think are driving the interest are greatest in sort of coastal cities, the labor issues um, – and the material cost issues are real in every market around the country. So we think we'll see this tested out, you know, probably in higher cost cities on the coasts and that but that it is quickly taking hold elsewhere. And
1: and do you see so the factories they tend to be built close to the demand or are they building a factory in the middle of the country and then shipping uh, to both coasts?
3: That that totally varies. We have seen some um Manufacturers who are um, you know in the, in the middle of the country and shipping off to the coast and, and going shipping halfway across the country we've seen others that are located you know pretty close to the, to the areas where they're doing most of their work right now.
2: Yes, yeah, so I would say in terms of location of factories, what seems to be emerging is that folks doing fully volumetric, where they would be hauling something really large, are seeking to build closer to the markets they're going to serve. Um, you've seen factories pop up in, in the Bay Area, right in San Francisco, in Brooklyn to serve New York City, so that you're not having those same transit costs. Um, and it does address some of those labor tensions too. If you have local higher requirements or concerns about taking jobs out of the market, for those that are doing things that can be flat-packed and, and maybe even you would want to store them for some period of time, being just connected well to highways and having a storage yard seems to be an important factor and may mean that they continue to be in places outside of major areas where that land and those those highway connections are more valuable. So we'll probably continue to see some variation. We didn't talk to anybody that says, said, we're going to double down on having one giant factory in only one place. Everyone seems to be growing with sort of a nodal structure where they're going to move it strategically in different parts of the country or the region they're serving.
1: Well, Andrea and, and Adam, thank you so much on this really exciting, exciting work, uh, great profile of, of this uh, new frontier of, of construction. And thank you so much for coming in. Thank,
3: thank you. you. Thanks for having us.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you're interested in more, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud.